Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, you will hear from leading experts who share some insights into the current role of stem cell transplantation in myeloproliferative neoplasms and how this may change with novel agents. First, Ruben Mesa shares some insights into the role of transplant in myelofibrosis and factors to consider when transplanting patients. So stem cell transplant continues to be a very important option for patients with myelofibrosis. I think earlier types of MPNs, it's still the risk with transplant, I think still really exceeds its, its utility. So it's really a, a therapy for MF. Big lessons that we've learned over these 10 years with JAK inhibitors, one, we can transplant people too late. So people that are, are, are younger, good candidates, higher risk, we definitely need to consider it. People probably benefit when they're having an optimal JAK inhibitor response. Transplant as a salvage therapy for a patient that really is declining or progressing is probably less efficacious, greater risk of relapse, you know, and, and less likelihood of success. It is an incredibly complicated personal decision as to whether to pursue a stem cell transplant. So what I do in my management of patients, I try to have them visit with a stem cell transplanter early on if they're a potential candidate now or in the future. And for us to kind of always keep that in mind, is that something we should do now? Is that something we should do after a period of time? Is that something we should only do if the disease progresses? Next, Jayanne Palmer discusses important factors to consider when selecting patients for transplant, including donor selection, timing of transplant, and managing splenomegaly. As we know, although there's a number of exciting treatments coming up for myelofibrosis, the only curative option at this point is allogeneic stem cell transplant. When we think about allogeneic stem cell transplant, there are a number of things that we are still sorting out and I think are pretty exciting. The first one is when to do a transplant. What's the appropriate timing? Who are the appropriate candidates? There's a number of different things we're looking at that, assessing risk based, based on clinical features, based on mutations, um, as well as looking at the patient themselves. Then uh, the other, another big question is what to do with donors. I think it's very clear that matched sibling is the ideal donor to use in the setting of a bone marrow transplant, especially for myelofibrosis, which seems to be a little bit more sensitive to mismatches. But we also know that matched unrelated donor um, is probably almost equivalent. Um, and there is a lot of emerging data using haploidentical donors where we're seeing very good survivals after transplant. And at this point, I think probably haploidentical donors are probably a little bit better than even the mismatched unrelated donors based on the data, although there's never really been a head-to-head -head comparison. Um, and then the other thing to do is what to do with the spleen around the set time of transplant. Many of these patients have large spleens, and although in a perfect world what we try to do is we try to shrink the spleen with a JAK inhibitor uh, pre-transplant, the question remains, what is the role of peritransplant ruxolitinib, and what do we do in the setting where we cannot shrink the spleen appropriately with ruxolitinib? Um, so in the peritransplant setting, there's some emerging data suggesting that keeping people on a low dose of ruxolitinib through the transplant period through engraftment or up to day 30 may be, a, um, may be an approach that can help prevent some of the flare-up of stopping the Jacophy. Um, and in those patients whose spleen we cannot shrink, there does appear to be some evidence that if the spleen is particularly large, i.e. 
greater than 15 centimeters below the cost, left costal margin, that perhaps doing a splenectomy prior to uh, transplant may be a benefit to the patient. It does not seem to be a benefit in all comers. Um, the other thing that's being looked at is splenic radiation. And although we don't have a good comparison, comparative study between irradiating the spleen and not, it does appear to be a safe approach and may help shrink the spleen prior to transplant. The management of the spleen is, is very interesting because splenectomy has a lot of complications. Um, but the hope would be is that if you can remove the spleen directly before transplant or radiate it, that you may also help prevent disease relapse. Although at this point, we don't really have convinced we don't have concrete data supporting that. Yeah, no, I think the one thing that did come out of it that's gonna be an interesting thing as an, on, an interesting point as an ongoing discussion is with all of these new therapies that may potentially have more disease-modifying effects on the disease, will that affect the timing of transplant? Will that affect, um, you know, how will this affect the duration of length people will get from therapy? At this point, we know Ruxolitinib only has about a three-year median time that it will work, at least based on the comfort studies, so perhaps with these other agents, if we have a longer duration of response, that may help us delay transplant in some patients, and in some patients, especially in older patients who we know tend to have a harder time with transplant, may help them avoid it altogether. But that is yet to be seen, and something that we certainly look forward to learning more about. Lastly, you will hear from Claire Harrison, who highlights challenges with selecting patients with myelofibrosis for stem cell transplant, and Harris Ali, who shares some insights into how novel disease-modifying therapies may impact the role of transplant in this disease. So the role of transplantation in MPNs is limited to patients with myelofibrosis or patients with accelerated or blastic phase disease. Unfortunately, many of our patients are not really eligible for transplant, even though it is a curative um, a treatment, it's also an extremely risky one. And so um, it's really important that we think about that interface as to when that might be an important and useful strategy, an appropriate strategy, in fact, and when not. So just thinking purely about myelofibrosis, this is getting complicated now because we've got combination approaches trying to improve our frontline and second line responses. We've got four different JAK inhibitors. So still the thinking is, yes, there is a role. And yes, for a patient where you're thinking that transplant is going to be a preferred mode of therapy, you should take your patient to transplant at the time when they have their best response to the JAK inhibitor. That is a tough message to give to a patient, but the evidence suggests that is the case. Rather than cycling patients through repeated therapies, it's really definitely the case. In accelerated and blastic phase, ideally, of course, we want to be offering a patient a curative therapy if we can, although our chances of cure are less in that context. And we would definitely, again, wanting to be moved towards a transplant after some debulking therapy while the patient is in accelerated rather than at blastic phase. It's a very intriguing question whether uh, the, uh, the new agents that are coming in uh, and potentially disease-modifying would they change the indication uh, for myelofibrosis and transplant? Um, and um, I mean, uh, for, for, for one thing that we don't have a clear definition of what exactly a disease modification is and how it will translate into uh, change improvement in the outcomes. Um, I mean, ideally a disease modifying agent should be something that in myelofibrosis that can cause uh, hematologic improvement, ideally hematologic remission. Uh, and some of the other things uh, 
a decrease in the malignant clone, uh, improvement um, in the cytogenetic abnormalities, uh, resolution of fibrosis, improvement in cytokine uh, abnormalities, uh, and finally, actually, really improving in the survival of the patient with the improved quality of life. So, I mean, uh, the data is, is uh, kind of premature with the new agent, so it's a little bit hard to predict, but um, it's, it seems like where the direction is going, that um, the, the new agent is definitely going to improve the outcome of uh, transplant, like, just like roxolitinib has done. Um, I mean, the patient who, who have been on roxolitinib is responding, for example, uh, when they undergo transplant, they actually uh, do much better in transplant than patients who are either not on it or do not have good response. So, you know that the agent with better responses have better uh, better transplant outcomes. So, we, th we think that um, uh, a good treatment uh, for uh, eligible patients who need transplant is going to improve the transplant outcome. Uh, what, what might happen is that a patient, if they really have a prolonged duration of response, uh, the indication of transplant may not exactly change, but patient may not need transplant so uh, so acutely uh, when when they need it. That, that potentially can be delayed, and they can get benefit from the medication. And really, uh, down the road, hopefully, the, we can improve the outcome of patient with and without a transplant. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean. Until next time.